Well, it is, uh, it is lovely to be with you here this morning. Uh, my wife and I, uh, we love this church. Uh, we loved our time here. We grew uh, a lot here. This is probably uh, our most formative time in our Christian life for my wife and I. Uh, even prior to going to seminary, my, my three or four years here, uh, worshiping with this body uh, was more formative, formative for me uh, and for my wife than even four years of academic semi- seminary. Um, I am not Pastor Pat. I'm a little bit taller than Pat is, so this podium is a little bit lower than I think it is on Pat. Um, my wife and I are from Edgerton, Minnesota, which if you know where Edgerton, Minnesota is, I would be impressed and shocked. Um, this is about what it is all winter for us, about one degree, five degrees, something like that. Uh, Pat earlier this week sent me a video of him uh, with, his, uh, with his friends riding his bike on the highways of California. I, uh, in turn, looked out my study window at church into our backyard uh, and took a snapshot of my daughter uh, bundled up on the swings uh, in the snow. It was about 10 degrees outside, and I sent that to him. So I think he appreciated that, but nevertheless. Uh, We're going to be looking at Psalm 42 this morning, so I'd invite you to open your Bible to Psalm 42. Psalm 42, if you look at your heading in your Bible, it probably says something like uh, book two. Uh, The Psalms are divided into five books. Um, So this begins book two. So we're going to be looking at Psalm 42. I will read um, all 11 verses and then we will dive in. But before we do, let us turn to God, uh, the author of this word, and ask ask for his help in a time of prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask that as we open your word now to Psalm 42, that you would bless us, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have us to learn and to understand today from your holy word. We pray that we would make much of the Lord Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows, who carried our burden, carried our guilt, carried our shame, and atoned for that on the cross. We ask that you would give us eyes to see. In his name we pray, amen. So follow along with me, if you would, as I read from Psalm 42. To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? 
Why do I go on mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, my opening question for you this morning is this. Um... Are Christians allowed to be miserable? Are Christians allowed to be miserable? Are Christians, those who trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, those who lean on Christ's righteousness for their perfect standing before God, are those people, those kinds of Christians, are Christians allowed to be gloomy? Are they allowed to be discouraged? Are they allowed to be miserable? I mean, we talk to each other on Sunday morning. Some of us see each other during the week and we say, just making small talk and we say, how you doing? And we want to hear certain answers. If we're honest, we want to hear certain answers. We want to hear, I'm doing fine, doing well, doing good. It makes the conversation a lot more difficult if someone says to the question, how are you doing? And they say, Not so great. Pretty sad, pretty discouraged, and I feel borderline depressed. Those conversations get a lot harder, really quickly. Because those kinds of people are harder to engage with than the person who, even if they're lying, just says, I'm fine. We would almost rather have that than to have to enter into someone's misery. So are Christians allowed to be miserable? I'd be curious how you might respond if someone were to say that to you. I'm not doing so well. I'm miserable. How would you respond to that? I think different people would probably have different answers. Some of the common ones might be get a grip and cheer up. This is not a good look. I brought visitors to church today and you are scaring them away because of how sad you are. You need to cheer up. Get it together. Or maybe you are one of those people who, when someone is a little bit miserable and they're a believer, maybe you say, children of the king are too blessed to be stressed. They're too glad to be sad. What are you doing? Gloomy Gus, sad Sally, cheer up. It's not a good look for our church with people that are sad all the time. So is it possible for Christians to be gloomy and sad and miserable? I think the Bible's answer to that is yes. I think the Bible's answer to that is yes. Psalm 42 is a definite yes. That Christians, those who trust in Christ, can go through periods of time where they are miserable, discouraged. Why are you downcast, O my soul? That's the kind of language that we're hearing. So what are we to do with that? What does God's word tell us to do with that? Now, these are, these are things that aren't necessarily super obvious to a lot of people. If someone has a procedure, someone goes into the hospital and has a surgery, well, your, your, your empathy picks up and you want to go visit that person. Or someone comes in with crutches and a limp on Sunday morning and it's noticeable. And you say, I'm going to go talk to them and see how they're doing, see what happened. This kind of thing... You walk past people all the time that are saying to themselves, why are you downcast, O my soul? And you walk right by them 
and we don't notice. So what does God's word tell us to do? Well, from this text, from Psalm 42, we're going to see uh, three words that I want you to latch on to that, that kind of help us unpack what this text gets at. And those three words are this, longing, discouragement, and hope. Longing, discouragement, and hope. That's our kind of our roadmap uh, as we go through this text this morning. So look at Psalm 42. First, let's look at longing, verses 1 to 4. Notice the heading. This is actually uh, the heading in an English Bible, but in the Hebrew, this is verse 1. The things that we typically skip over. It says, to the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. So don't skip over that as though that's a, that's a secondary thing just thrown in there to help us. No, that's part of the text. This is a, a maskil. It's a liturgical term of the sons of Korah. And it's actually verse 1 in the Hebrew. This psalm of lament would not have been just tucked away in the corner somewhere, embarrassed, shamed, hidden. No, this would have been sung by God's people in corporate worship, singing songs of lament, giving language to that misery. This would have been used in worship by God's people. Now, the sons of Korah were a Levitical family who served in the temple. They were possibly musicians. They possibly would have sung this for the people of God. Now, notice in verse 1, we see this picture of the psalmist and his longing. Look at what he says. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. It's meant to convey a strong desire or a, an appetite, a single-minded focus. We might translate it, we might use the, the kind of term, this person has tunnel vision. They are laser-focused. They're saying, my soul longs for God as much as a deer longs for the water that comes from a living stream. His whole person, his soul longs for God. He's not panting after the cherry on top. Okay, he's not longing for something above and beyond that if he doesn't have it, it's kind of okay. No, this psalmist, this, this believer is longing for the presence of God because without it, there is only death. There's only death. He's not longing for something that he could part with and be fine. He is longing for his life source. My soul pants for you as a deer pants for flowing streams. Now, we're going to see this later on, but one of the things that we're going to see in this psalm is that he is saying these kinds of words, this kind of language is coming up from within him because he is likely physically distant from the temple in Jerusalem. He's, he's very likely way in the north country, physically distant from the temple in Jerusalem, but it's also bringing about a spiritual distance from God. He feels alienated, cut off. You could even say the psalmist, in a sense, feels forsaken because he is not in the presence of God in the temple. The main question that is running through this psalm is, how can I get from where I am to the temple where God is? That is what's underlying all of this kind of language. How can I get from where I am to the temple where God is in Jerusalem? And until I get there, my soul is downcast. My soul is discouraged. So he says in verse 2, When shall I come and appear before God? 
That is language getting at the temple. When shall I come and appear before God? To the temple in Jerusalem. Now notice there that he, he longs for God's presence. He longs to be in God's presence not because things are fantastic. It is not as though he's had a great week and he says, I cannot wait to get to church. I cannot wait to get to the temple because I have had a fantastic, superb week and I want to give praise to my God. He says, no, I'm miserable. And it's because I am miserable that I want to get to God's temple. I want to hear God's word. I want to sing his songs of praise with his people. He says his tears have been his food day and night, it says in verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. And that is a very cruel irony. Here's someone who's thirsting for God, and the thing that meets him in his thirst is his own tears. This is a man who has great longing, great sorrow, and languishing. He's mocked by his enemies. Verse 3, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? He's mocked. He's taunted by his enemies. Because his enemies can clearly see that there is an external disconnect in their minds between who he says he is and his circumstances. You're saying you're, you, you belong to God. You're one of the covenant people of God. Why on earth would God, who is good and gracious, allow you to be sad. Why would he do that? So the enemies are picking up that in their natural minds, there is an external disconnect in the optics that they see. God's, God's people wouldn't be like this. So that's why the question, where is your God? Surely if he was around, he wouldn't let you go through this. Surely if he was around, he wouldn't let you feel this way. Where is your God? But look at what the psalmist does. Verse 4. Where does he go with all these longings? Verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. What does he do? He remembers. He recalls. He goes backwards. He, he remembers all of the good things that the Lord has given to him over the years, over the decades. Now, this is not some kind of, just kind of sappy nostalgia or sentimentality. He is remembering the past, not to just linger in the past and long for the past. No, he's, he's using God's goodness to him in the past to say, that grounds me in the present. Because he's going to go forward and say, I hope in God that this will happen again. I will praise my God again. So it's this whole mix of recalling the past, having your hopes set on a certain future to give you rock solid stability in the present. All three of those things are working together in this psalm. What is he doing? What is the psalmist doing? The psalmist is being a good historian of God's grace. He's being a good historian of God's grace. What does a historian do? Well, a historian pours over the archives. They go through the evidence. They look at eyewitness testimony. They try to reconstruct former days. That's what this psalmist is doing. 
He's remembering God's grace to him. He's pouring over the archives of God's goodness towards him. He's recalling the goodness of of past worship, how he would lead the people of God in procession to the house of God. He's remembering past worship services in the present while he is gloomy, while he feels cut off, forsaken, and distant. He's remembering the fellowship that he had with God's people. And we see this other places in the Psalms. Psalm 103 is probably one of the most uh, popular Psalms. We sing it here sometimes. Uh, we actually just sang it, actually. Bless the Lord, O my soul. What does it say in there? Forget not all of his benefits. You and I are really good at forgetting all of his benefits. We are really good at it. We don't have to set any New Year's resolutions to say, this year I hope to forget God's benefits on a more frequent basis. You are going to nail that one almost every day. That's the only one that you're going to keep. You will forget God's benefits. And the psalmist is imploring himself, no, be a good historian of God's grace. Recall his benefits to you in the past. And you and I need to do that as well. You and I are called to be good historians of God's grace. So recall his benefits. Recall his goodness to you. His goodness to your family. His goodness to this church. Now sometimes that's hard to see day to day. It's like watching a child grow. You don't see growth day to day. But you look back through yearbooks. You look back through school pictures and you see growth. You see development and change over time. That's what this is. Look back through the days, the years, the decades. How has the Lord been good to you in the past? How has he been good to your family in this church? So there's longing. So he remembers the past and surely, surely, the fog lifts. The the discouragement goes away in an instant. Well, that's not the case either. Verse 5. This is starting our segment on discouragement. Discouragement. Verses 5 through 7. He says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? So even with the recollection, even with the cherished memories in the past, there's still discouragement. He's still remembering precious things that he doesn't have. So what does he begin to do? He begins to talk to himself. So far, he's been talking about his soul. Now he's talking directly to himself. Verse 5, why are you cast down? Who? Oh, my soul. He's talking directly to himself. Why are you cast down? Why are you downcast? Why are you so disturbed within me? Now, I don't think, this is a written text, but I don't think when he originally said this, it would have been harsh and critical, as though he's saying, get it together, soul. Let's go. Why are you downcast? Oh, my soul. It's not, it's not meant to have that kind of harsh tone to it. It's, he's, he's encouraging his own heart to say, Why? Why are you downcast? Oh, my soul. Think about it. Ponder it. He's trying to stir himself up to reflect on this discouragement and where he can go from there. Now, remember that the fundamental issue through this psalm is how does he get from where he is to where God is in the temple? How do I get from where I am to where God is in the temple? And he says, verse 5, hope in 
God. He issues himself a command. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him. My salvation and my God. Put your hope in God. Is what it's saying. It's a command. It's an imperative. Put your hope in God. Please notice here. That in this text. Hope is placed in something. Hope has an object. Sometimes we think about hope. And I've done this too. Sometimes hope just has this weird, smoky, vapor kind of feel to that word of like hope, it's just out there somewhere. Biblically, hope is not just a mist out there floating around. Hope is placed in something. Hope has an object. And that's how you and I typically think about it. We hope in things. Oftentimes, our hope is hypothetical. Like we hope the Huskers have a good year. That's very hypothetical. We, we hope that our kids do well in school. We hope that we have enough saved for retirement. You hear all those things. There's an uncertainty to all of those things. It's all hypothetical. Those aren't certain. You hope it comes out, but you, you wouldn't put all of your money on the table to, to guarantee those things. But biblical hope is not hypothetical. It's only as strong as the object in which you place your hope. So when he says hope in God, and remember he's talking to himself, hope in God, that is a rock solid anchor for his hope. It's not hypothetical, it's not mushy, it's not flexible, it is anchored in who God is, in his character and in his works. It's not placed in his circumstances, it's not placed in his own abilities to get him out of this place. It's not placed in his finances, his family, his health, his reputation. That's where you and I are very tempted to place hope. We are very tempted to place hope on things that we do or people that we know. And the psalmist is saying, put your hope in God. Because that is sure and that is certain. So we have this recalled past and this certain future. Hear the confidence in this language. Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. My salvation, my God. He is certain of this. He is sure of this. He doesn't enjoy it right now. He doesn't have it right now. He is physically distant and He feels spiritually removed, cut off. But He knows that this is true. He will praise God again. His hope is placed in the living God, His Savior and His God. And we have language that kind of gets around this. You and I talk in ways that sometimes are unhelpful to people who are in this place, who are miserable, who are suffering. What do we say to those people? We say, it's just a season. It's just a season. Yeah, but the problem is that I don't know when that season ends. I don't know if that season ends. So yes, it's just a season to, to, to go through hardship, but... When you're in the throes of it, you don't know when the end of that season is. But you can still say, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. He remembers again in verse 6, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Now this is what I was saying earlier. Very likely he is physically distant from the temple in Jerusalem. This, these places, the land of Jordan, of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, that is about as far north as you can possibly get 
before you are outside the territory of the people of God in the Old Testament. So he is saying, from all the way up there, I long to come into God's presence. He remembers God. But he still feels overwhelmed. Verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. It's a picture of feeling engulfed and pulled under by the onslaught onslaught of waves. And you and I have language like this today too. We say things like, how are you doing? I'm barely keeping my head above water. That's this. That's where that kind of language comes from. Oh, I'm treading water. Same thing. All these water references of feeling engulfed and pulled under by the water. It's a scary thing to feel exposed and weak in the presence of water that is powerful. And he says, his bones suffer. And yet the Lord is still in control. Notice who these breakers and who these waves belong to. They are God's breakers and they are God's waves. He is in control all the time. Not a hair can fall from your head and not a wave can crash over that head without the will of your heavenly Father who is good and gracious to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's the summary so far before we get to hope? Well, the summary is this. He feels cut off. He feels like it is a mountain of a distance between him and the temple of God in Jerusalem. He feels cut off. He feels forsaken. His enemies mock and taunt him. He is distant. He is downcast and he is discouraged. How can I get from where I am to the temple in Jerusalem where God is? How do I do it? But there's hope. Verses 8 through 12. He's never outside of the Lord's care. Look at verse 8. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. Night and day. The complete care of God for his people. His prayer is to God, his rock. Verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He feels forgotten. He feels cut off. He feels forsaken, removed, distant from God. The psalmist, I think, certainly feels the disconnect that the enemies that he's referring to point out. I think he's very in touch with that disconnect. He says, if God is for me, why is all this stuff happening? Why can I not be in his presence at all times and all places? Why am I gloomy? If God is for me, why am I miserable? He doesn't understand everything, and yet he trusts the Lord. Notice how he prays there in verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forsaken me? Notice that throughout this psalm, even though things aren't peachy in this man's life, They are far from it. Notice how he talks to God. Notice how he addresses God. He uses language like Lord, living God, my God, God of my life. And then he says, my God, my rock. So God's character and his works, his gracious 
movement towards this home is never in question because of this person's circumstances. You and I have a tendency, a very strong tendency to flip that. And we say, God's character swings back and forth based on my circumstances. So, if I'm having a hard time, if I get a diagnosis that I wasn't expecting, I'm, I must have done something wrong. God must not... Is God even good anymore? How can God be good and I have cancer? How can that be? And we, and we look at our circumstances and then we flip God's character based on those circumstances. And we say, well, God can't be good if this is happening to me. And the psalmist says, these things are happening to me and yet I will still call him my God and my rock. We need to hold those two together. God, my rock, as he says in verse 9. God, my rock, why? We have a tendency to split those things. That we say, God, my rock, and then we don't, we don't, we don't go to the why questions. We don't get into that because we are monotonous, spiritual stoics. God, my rock. I don't have any questions about anything that's happening to me. Everything is fine, even though it's not. Everything is fine. We don't ask the why questions. And then other times we, we ask the why questions and we see our circumstances and we change God's character in response. And it becomes mushy and flexible. But this psalm ends with hope. Even though his enemies, his adversaries there in verse 10, even though they taunt him, they say, where is your God? It ends with hope. Look at verse 11. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Notice what he does here. Two things that we typically give negative connotations to. He talks to himself and he repeats himself. Those are two things that we typically don't appreciate. We think of that as odd behavior. And yet scripture says, no, this is, this is the language that God has graciously given his people. That you talk to yourself and you repeat yourself. He repeats himself. Verse 5 and verse 11 are identical. He says the exact same thing twice. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So this psalm is not sanctified pessimism. This psalm is not marked throughout by doom and gloom. It ends with hope. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. This is not the biblical version of that really weird and wacky song, Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Guess I'll go eat worms. I don't know where that song came from, but it's weird. That song is weird. I don't know who thinks that way, but this is not the biblical version of that. This is, this is biblical sanctification put through the language of someone who is miserable. So the psalmist is discouraged and downcast until he can get himself to where God is in the temple in Jerusalem. But how will he know what to do? Because the problem is that once he gets to Jerusalem, once he comes into God's presence in the temple in Jerusalem, he's got a lot of work to do. Because scripture is so clear that, that whoever, he, whoever the psalmist is, he is not allowed to just waltz into God's temple willy-nilly. 
Scripture is extremely clear. Listen to Psalm 15, verses 1 through 3. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Tent is like tabernacle or temple. Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Jerusalem. It's hill country. This, this, in the, this is the requirement for coming into God's temple. He whose walk is blameless and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. So that is what our psalmist in Psalm 42 has waiting for him in Jerusalem. If he can get himself to the temple, his work is not done yet. He has to come into God's presence. He has to come into God's temple blameless and righteous and above reproach with a tongue that has not spoken evil of anyone. So that's why you have the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. To make people ceremonial clean so that they could come into the presence of God. So I ask you, people of Omaha Bible Church, how are you doing with that? How are you doing getting from here to the temple in Jerusalem and then once you get there, you have to be blameless and righteous and above reproach. That's not why Pat is having you go on this Israel trip. That's not the point. How are you doing with that? As Pat likes to say, you and I are all smoked. We're smoked. We can't just waltz into God's temple. We can't just come into His presence as we are. So if the question this psalmist is wrestling with is, how do I get from where I am to God's temple? The gospel comes to you and says, you're never going to do that. The gospel says to you that the true temple has come to you. Jesus Christ in the Gospels refers to his own body as the temple. If the temple is God's very presence with his people, then Jesus Christ, who is the eternal Son of God in the flesh, who dwells among his people, is how the temple gets to you. Jesus comes to you. The true temple comes near his people in order to save them. So, the psalmist is speaking in language of trying to get from where he is to the earthly temple in Jerusalem. The gospel says to you, the true temple comes to you. And you do not have to clean up your act before he comes to you. You do not have to find yourself blameless and righteous and perfectly holy before God the Son comes to you. No, he comes to save his enemies. The ones who mock him. The ones who taunt him. The ones who, while he is dying on the cross, look at him and say, if you are the Son of God, why don't you just come on down from there? They're saying, if that's who you claim to be, then this, these circumstances don't add up. You shouldn't be suffering like you are. You can hear how that is in this psalm. External circumstances don't match up with their identity. And so the question comes, where is your God? Jesus is dying on the cross, suffering servants, man of sorrows as we just sang. And the enemies come by and they mock him way worse than the psalmist had. And they say, if you are the son of God, come down from there and we will believe in you. 
His enemies mock and taunt him. So this is the, this is the suffering servant who draws near to his people in salvation, who didn't just feel cut off from the presence of God. He didn't just subjectively kind of think that he was maybe outside the presence of God and forsaken and distant and removed. He actually was forsaken by God. That's what he's doing on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is the ultimate fulfillment of what this psalmist feels that he is cut off and removed. Jesus Christ, in your place, actually was bearing the curse for your sins. Actually was forsaken and cut off and distant. He is the suffering servant who does that for you. He is the suffering servant who was mocked and taunted by his enemies. That's you and I. That's how the New Testament talks about you and I. It doesn't talk about us as though we were friends and then we became better friends with Jesus after his death and resurrection. No, the movement is not from friend to best friend. The movement is from enemies to friends. These, the enemies that taunt the psalmist, that is you and I taunting our Lord. And we say, we are the weak ones. We are the ungodly ones who have heaped insults at him. And yet he has come to reconcile his people through the blood of his cross. So that is the gospel. The gospel is not about me from wherever I am trying to clean myself up, trying to get to that earthly temple no matter what I have to do. Because it's not going to be enough. The gospel says, no, the true temple, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God in the flesh, who has come to dwell amongst his people, that is the true temple coming to you to rescue you, to save you, to dwell amongst his people, and then to lead them, like the psalmist says, to lead them in procession to the house of God. That is your Christian life. If you are looking for something for your Christian life, it is there in verse 4. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. That is your Christian life. Your King and Savior, your High Priest, your suffering servant is in the front leading His people in procession through this earthly pilgrimage to the new heavens and the new earth where there are no more tears, no more sadness, no more sorrow, and he has secured all of it by tasting that cup of wrath for us. So now he leads us in procession into the eternal presence of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfect fellowship, perfect worship for all time. That's what your suffering servant has done for you. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give you such praise and honor and glory and blessing. We thank you for the privilege that it is to come into your presence this morning to worship and adore you. We see in the New Testament how you transform and shape your people. And we know that that happens Sunday by Sunday, week by week until the new heavens and the new earth. You are shaping your people from one degree of likeness to the next 
transforming them into your glorious image. We thank you so much for the finished, perfect work of Jesus Christ, our true temple, who has come near to us in the gospel. He has come near to the enemies that he has come to save. He has come near and dwelt among the weak and ungodly like ourselves. And he has brought reconciliation through, the, through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. So we give you great honor and great praise as the lamb who has been slain. We pray that you would bless us now as we go forth from this place. Encourage our hearts with the finished work of the Lord Jesus. Help us to be kind and compassionate, putting on humility as you would have us. Give us good courage. Give us good hope as we seek to proclaim your unsearchable riches to the watching world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.